think the key theme is you can be incredibly successful with the community, but you have to be intentional. Oftentimes what happened in my experience of observing other communities is that people would get really excited at the beginning, they would do a whole lot of work, and then after hosting maybe three events, the enthusiasm would die and they wouldn't do anything else. So it was actually easy for people to start. It's not very easy to grow and scale. And that's why I talk a lot about intentionality. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung, and being vocally self-critical, I have not really mastered the art of organizing a community for the loyal audience of this podcast. Today, I have Mark Birch, Global Startup Advocate for Amazon Web Services, where I used to work, and an author of his new book, Community in a Box, to teach me how to jumpstart this community. Importantly, he's one of my ex-colleagues who's great to hang out with. Mark, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Bernard. Really glad to be here. Very excited to be on the podcast and to talk all things building, growing, and scaling communities. Mm. I think a lot of people can build. The other part of growing and scaling is a whole can of worms that we can unpack during our little chat. Yes, and we have collaborated before, but I actually didn't know you that well other than having a few conversations and even having a dinner two days ago, finally seeing you face to face. So maybe to help my audience, uh, I want to know your origin story. How did you start your career? I've had a few different careers. So I was out of school as an electrical engineer, but I would do summers on the floor of the Comex Exchange. That's a commodities exchange in New York City. And after I graduated, I went into the, the industry as a floor trader. Very quickly, though, I realized that at the same time that this is happening, there's companies by the name of Yahoo, Excite, all these dot-com companies coming out of Silicon Valley. I was really excited about it. And so I thought, maybe I should be doing that. Instead of being here as a trader where... It's a great job. I'm making tons of money, but I could be disrupted. There's a kid that's building a program right now that's going to take over the whole commodities industry. So I figured I'd want to be on that side of the house. So I got another job, a complete 180 degree turn as a software developer. And I was working for a small software shop in downtown New York. And that's where I really got my career started. Over time, I've had different roles in enterprise sales. I've been a managing consultant. And then I went out on my own as a tech founder in New York City. So I started an HR tech company. The company itself was called Wingspread. It didn't really do much, but it was a really interesting concept of trying to analyze skills across an entire organization. Learned a lot in that experience. I kind of rolled that into a lot of work I started to do in the 2010s, which was advising, investing, and mentoring founders. Found my way over to Stack Overflow to build their SaaS business from the ground up. And in that, in that time, I spent a lot of time in Asia building the business and expanding it through the region, connected with some folks that said, hey, all this great stuff that you're doing around building communities, we could use that at our place called AWS. Would you be interested in joining? And that's how I got started here 
as, in my role as a principal startup advocate. And I remember when you were in Stack Overflow, you also write a pretty well-known newsletter, right? <laughs> yes. This was also part of my uh, plan to really think about audience, about personas, and about motivations, and understanding what my buyers of this SaaS technology that I was selling at Stack Overflow would really care about. And so I talked a lot with CTOs in large organizations about the challenges of developer communities, developer culture, productivity, communication strategies, how it's hard to have tribal knowledge and to collect that knowledge and to use it as a superpower in your organization. So what evolved was a mechanism by just using a newsletter, right? Simple email and newsletter, but having very impactful essays that spoke to those core needs that CTOs were grappling with. And it really started to take off. And so at this point I have 4,000 subscribers and it covers a whole host of topics from engineering management to developer culture. Sometimes I go off on a tangent and talk about other things, but what really connects with folks is that it's meaningful information and it's built around stories that people can relate to. So I guess in your career journey, you have also encountered many different founders. What are the key lessons that you can share with my audience? Oh boy, key lessons. And this gets to my concepts around community because ultimately, no matter where you are in the world, what is the most important thing to people? It's ourselves. We love ourselves. Even if we may be the most humble people on the planet and we think, oh, we're not egotistical. The truth of the matter is we love to hear about ourselves. We love to get accolades. We love to see our names on display. And so if you take an innate interest in others, guess what? They'll take an innate interest in you and what you have to say. And this is a core concept. I mean, there's a book I read years ago when I was shifting my career from software engineering to sales. And it was by a gentleman by the name of Dale Carnegie. And he wrote this wonderful book called How to Influence Others. Right? And the key lesson in that book was be interested in other people and they'll be interested in you. And so that's been the heart of what I've done as I've I've thought about building communities. When I went out to Asia to develop the business at Stack Overflow, it's just been a pillar of who I am. And I think what matters most, though, is that it's something that I, I truly believe in. It's part of who I am. It, you can't fake interest. If you are genuinely interested in other people, that shows. Although I know what your job description is, but I think the rest of the world is probably interested to know. What is your current role as a global startup advocate from Amazon Web Services? What do you do? What do I do? It's a very unique role. There's not a lot of people that do this thing. I think internally at AWS, we describe it as the Jeff Barr, but focused on startup founders. So who's Jeff Barr? He's this person who's been at AWS for many years. And he was the guy who would be very publicly facing, talking about all the cool technologies that AWS is building. We also have a lot of startups that are building on AWS. And so the idea behind the Startup Advocate is to take that same level of enthusiasm, 
that idea of being a spokesperson, the idea of telling stories about what other people are building on AWS, and to make it interesting and share those stories out with other people that are thinking about the ideas, thinking about things that they're, they want to build, so that when they do start building, they consider AWS as the place to do that with and with and as a partner that they can trust to help them along the way. And mm. so I do a lot of talks, I do a lot of content creation, and I also help others to connect with startup founders. So I do a lot of collaboration inside the organization as well. So you're in Singapore this week and I managed to catch you. So what are you currently doing here? Uh, doing exactly all of what I just said, which is being a spokesperson, connecting with different uh, parts of the organization. You know, AWS has grown over the years. And so we're all busy in our two pizza teams being very productive, doing great things, great work on behalf of our customers. And what I tend to see is how do we better enable joining up all of these, these team efforts to have greater impact? So part of another pillar of my role is how do we think about what all this, all this stuff that we're doing, all these programs that we're executing, all these marketing events that we're hosting, how does that create a community? And how can we not only focus on the stuff that we do on behalf of customers, but also bring customers into the fold to be a force multiplier for creating value, value for all of us in terms of what we're building. And particularly as startup founders, where we're so resource constrained, where we don't have a whole lot of time available to us, can we leverage the power of community to help us in those early days when we're just getting started, when we're building, when we have lots of questions, and we can have a support network that's built on the basis of shared values, aka community, to accelerate our growth. So that comes to the main subject of the day, which is your new book, Community in a Box, How to Build Event-Driven Professional Communities. I basically took a 24-hour quick read on a book and have to come up with what I have to learn from you today about building communities. <laughs> sure. So maybe just to start off, what is the inspiration behind writing Community in a Box? There's a bit of a backstory. So in my work post my, my own startup as a founder, I was advising a lot of founders in New York tech B2B startups ecosystem on a lot of go-to-market strategies. Most of the founders that I had this network with were more product-oriented or engineering-oriented and didn't have a lot of experience around marketing and especially sales. Well, I had a background in sales. I had a background as a founder. I've been a software developer. So I had this really unique angle on how to think about sales, maybe from an engineering point of view. And so I had very specific ways of how I became successful in selling at places like Siebel and at Oracle. And I took those lessons into my own startup. Well, the challenge was I'd have all these coffee meetings with founders to talk about sales. And I just felt it was horribly inefficient because I'm having all these one-on-one -on -one meetings saying the same exact thing and also getting a lot of coffee headaches in the process. There's only so many coffees you can drink during a day before it starts to mess with your mind. So I figured, why not just bring all these people together in one room that wanted to pick my brains 
instead of picking my brains and taking my time, they could pick the brains of other people I invite to share their knowledge about sales. And if I set this up as a monthly get-together, we can have different topics. Like we could talk about prospecting one month, next month we could talk about sales cycles, we could talk about uh, finding your internal champion, talk about negotiations, and so on and so forth. When I started this, I didn't really think I'd get even 20 people to attend. 85 people showed up and it just took off from there. And then eventually we had different chapters, not only in New York City, but in Boston, Washington, D.C., Chicago, San Francisco, Toronto, London, even in Singapore, we had an enterprise sales forum. So the community itself was called Enterprise Sales Forum. Uh, we had 24 chapters, 30,000 members at its height right before COVID hit. And we would host monthly meetings in all these different chapters with people that were doing interesting things in sales, sales leaders, sales operations folks, just people that had a lot of really interesting experience and unique perspectives. So in order to make this work, I wrote an operations guide. It was 18 pages. It had everything soup to nuts and how to start a chapter, how to manage events and so on. I joined AWS in May of 2020, right when COVID was hitting. One of the challenges that we faced, though, particularly with user groups, was how to do a user group when you can't meet in person. So one of the dev relations managers or developer relations managers reached out and said, hey, does anyone have advice for user groups or user group leaders? I had this operations guide. So I said, well, maybe you can use this. So I shared it. And I started thinking, this is kind of old. It's been around for a few years. Maybe I should update it. So I cleaned it up. So what 18 pages became 36 pages. Then I shared it with a few people. They had some feedback. So 36 pages became 50 pages. Then I sent it out to a wider group. <laughs> and then the floodgates opened up. I got overwhelmed with feedback. And I said, okay, well, all, a lot of this feedback is actually really good. So then it became 180 pages. And I said, you know what? I think I have a book. So let me let me do something with this. So that that's how Community Box evolved. And I just, I found someone to do the cover. I found a copy editor. I self-published on, on Amazon. And it's it's gone really well. So really happy to see that out in the wild. So what are the main themes and key takeaways for the book? I think the key theme is you can be incredibly successful with the community, but you have to be intentional. Oftentimes what happened in my experience of observing other communities is that people would get really excited at the beginning. They would do a whole lot of work. And then after hosting maybe three events, the enthusiasm would die and they wouldn't do anything else. So it was actually easy for people to start. It's not very easy to grow and scale. And that's why I talk a lot about intentionality. And a lot of that of, comes from your own motivations and passion for the community you want to start. So I start the book off talking about the why. Why does this community exist? And why should you be the person building it? So that's kind of how I, I think about the, the key lessons of the book. Be intentional. Okay. So it's being intentional then who is the intended audience for the book itself then? Good point. 
it, it can be for anyone. Because I truly believe that if you have that passion and drive, you can make it happen. Sometimes I equate building a community analogous to building a startup. Except your product isn't some sort of SaaS thing or some AI thing. It, it's a community. It's bringing people together. And there's, a, there's, there's definitely an uphill climb. There's peaks and valleys. And you got to be able to have that stubbornness and that the stubbornness of vision and the persistence to keep carrying through. But it comes down to like, who are those people? Well, one, it's people that generally have the heart to want to give. And you have to have the availability because you have to, you can't shortcut building community. You need time to build it up and to be with it and to, and to have it grow much if you plant a, if you plant a bunch of seeds in a garden, you got to water it. You got to be there all the time to make sure that these plants grow in the seedlings and become full on vegetables or fruits or whatever you're growing. And so you have to have that, that time set aside to make that community blossom. And then lastly, I'd say your motivations. I got an opportunity to have a lot of folks that join the enterprise sales forum to lead chapters. And what I found is that it's okay to have motivations that are self-interested, but it's not okay to be completely self-interested. So as an example, I had many community leaders or chapter leaders that, that wanted to become chapter leaders because they wanted to advance their career. But they also cared about people. Ultimately, they saw themselves as someone that's trying to give back to others and helping them grow in their careers. Whereas there was some chapter leaders that were all about selling their, their sales consulting or their sales training. And they just looked at it as an opportunity to sell to people in the community. And that's very much a selfish motivation as opposed to a selfless motivation. So let's start from the why. Why do companies need to build event-driven professional communities then? They don't need to. And this is where I may diverge from a lot of people that are in the, that are focused on the community space. I don't know if your laundry detergent needs an event-driven community. So maybe it can. Maybe I'm, I'm not uh, visionary enough to see that happen. But ultimately, you have to ask yourself, are we as an organization willing to invest in community? Because, and we can talk more about this uh, later, but community is not a sales and marketing channel. Now, that may be an outcome that it can drive interest, awareness. But ultimately, community has to be about the members themselves and the value you're creating for them. And in that sense, you got to say to yourself, okay, is that a type of motion that we want to invest in, can invest in, and willing to have a long-term perspective? You're not going to grow a community in the course of a financial quarter. You can host events, but that won't be a community. A community is going to take many quarters. It just takes time for that, that nascent community to kind of gel to form, to build true fans that actually care about the community and are, and are con contributing their time and effort into making that community blossom. And also has to be driven by the community, not by the company itself. And this is where you get into a lot of issues 
when I've seen certain companies have user groups and the company is taking complete control over the user group experience. Whereas kind of an interesting example is at AWS, we have lots of user groups around the world. We support the user groups, but we do not tell the user groups what to do, when to host things, how to run their events, as long as it stays in line with our overall community practices or our, our common values. User group communities and user group leaders are free to run their, their communities as they will, again, with our support. But that's a very different philosophy from other companies that may say, we need to control everything about the community. And if that's the case, then you don't have a community. You just have another marketing channel. So I think you need to start from there. And then you can start to dig into maybe the specific questions around what value is the community actually providing for us? But if you don't start from the, the community and the member first, then your motivations will be completely misaligned and you're going to just have something that's not going to be very effective. What is the role and responsibility of a community organizer? The, the key role of a community organizer is to stop being an organizer. And that sounds so counterintuitive. But here's the secret. If community is all about the founder of a community, again, you don't have a community. You have a cult because all the attention is focused on you, not all the other people. And this was something I, I had to learn myself. When I was building and scaling the enterprise sales community, I put a lot of that effort on myself. And one of the negative byproducts is that people equated the enterprise sales forum with Mark Birch. And that is absolutely not what you want as a community leader. People should see your community as the collective of people, not the collective of one person or a few people that are the founders or the most visible leaders. And the reason is this, because you want to encourage people to participate and you don't want to feel, you don't want to create what appears to be barriers in your community. Because the only way your community will get to the point where it goes from building phase to growing and scaling is by having an active recruitment pipeline internally of people who feel they can contribute and that they can gain value from those contributions. And as they contribute further, they feel more invested in wanting to, to take on more leadership responsibility. And before I talked about, I was at a company called Stack Overflow that you know, some of your listeners may be very uh, well aware of. You can think about it very much in the, in the Stack Overflow sense of the way that you have more authority on Stack Overflow, more capabilities to do things on Stack Overflow is by participating. When you participate more, you get more reputation points, you get more badges, and that opens up more opportunities to get more involved. And eventually, if you are very involved, you may even become a moderator someday. And the same way, you want to try to build those dynamics in your community so you're inviting others to participate. So the original question was, okay, community builder, like what, what should they be doing? They should be focused on all of their efforts on how to bring more people into the fold to help run that community. In fact, I almost say that, that recruiting 
should be one of the earliest things you do. So how does the community foster a set of values? Do the organizers actually need to first start off with a few and then evolve them as they grow? What you have to do at the earliest stages is understand what are your tenants? What, what does this community stand for? You know, as an example, with the Enterprise Sales Forum, we had four very clear tenants. It was non-commercial, so we didn't want our content being influenced by you know, vendors or providers or consultants. We wanted to be an open and inclusive environment, so we were very act- actively pursuing and ensuring that our chapters were diverse and that our speakers represented a range of diversity. We wanted to be focused on helping to educate. And so we had these core tenants and that formed the basis of how we ran the organization, how new chapters were formed, how we even thought about bringing on new chapter leaders. So those cores are are incredibly important. How do they form? I think it starts at the founder, but it can't just stop at the founder or the founding team of a community. You do have to revisit those and over time look at, do they still reflect our community? Because I don't think values, they shouldn't be like a poster board that you just kind of put up on the wall and say, that's nice, and then ignore it. Values, tenants, principles, whatever you want to call them, they have to live as your community lives. And any living creature evolves. So does the community. What are the metrics that would drive growth for a community if it's so intangible as well since you're thinking about it from another point of view right how do you measure if a community is successfully engaging to the rest of the world out there right i have a few different perspectives on the concept of metrics i think metrics are important i think you also need to be very careful because metrics can guide you into certain behaviors that aren't conducive to the community. You gotta understand that that the way you think about metrics is also very intentional. And you should be focused more on outcomes rather than vanity metrics. I wrote a post in my DevBizOps newsletter, I think maybe a year, year and a half ago, that talked a lot about this idea of, of levels of metrics. So the first level of metrics are specifically things that you can directly measure about a community. That could be number of members, could be amount of content that's generated, could be number of events, could be number of attendees at events. Like those things are very direct metrics from activity. Then you, you need to kind of think of what, what are the next, what's the next layer of our metrics? And those metrics may be, what is the impact of that engagement? Meaning how many people are connecting and doing something after an event? Or are people finding jobs because of connections at an event? So things that are impactful directly from the activity that your community is generating. And then the long-term things are more business-oriented or strategic in nature. So if you are hosting a whole bunch of events where you're doing these things around the community, are we seeing the outcropping of broad-based changes, meaning are we seeing more collaboration? Are we seeing more engagement with different sales leaders coming together and sharing ideas? Whatever that may be. 
And that's more in my world of building a community that was outside a corporate context. If you bring this into a corporate context, companies care about what? They care about revenue. They care about customers. So you have to maybe reorient what you think about that's impactful and see, can these potentially tie into things that are really strategic for an organization and work backwards from there? So you will still look at your activity metrics around the community. You'll look at things like growth, attendees, those types of things. But you also now need to think about the ultimate impact is going to be how does this generate revenue or generate awareness or generate customer success or satisfaction or loyalty, like whatever those overarching strategic goals are for an organization to be able to tie community activity to those broader strategic pillars of the organization. So I think we have gone through the internet through three different revolutions. We have the web one to web two, then now to web three. And yeah. I think one of the very interesting thing about web three is that there is the concept of decentralized autonomous organizations where governance becomes important, incentives become important. Every proposal needs to be voted for protocol. And you think pretty deeply that sometimes I even feel like they can be a, like a guild in a gaming setting <laughs> as yeah. well. Maybe... The question I have is slightly different in what are the best practices that are actually consistent with the way how great communities are built, regardless of whether it's a web one, web two or web three. And what are the, actually the major differences between these different waves of technology change? Very deep question. Let me see if I can unpack some of this. From a community perspective, there's not much change when you think about Web 1, Web 2. And in fact, if you think about the, the course of, of human history, centralization plays a big part. You have a leader. A leader drives a movement that brings other people into the fold. And eventually, that, and maybe an organization is formed from that. And that, by and large, has been how history is developed. It starts with a spark. That generally starts with a person or a small group of people that snowballs into something which becomes an incredible movement or incredibly impactful. Now, we're emerging in this weird world of Web3. And it's marvelous. It's new. But is it new from a sociological perspective? Oh, no. I think we assume that we can be this autonomous organization where there's no central head or leader. But every project, if you look at, at the NFT space, starts with some small group that has the spark. They have the creative juice and the inputs to drive this NFT project. And that then evolves into a whole bunch of other people getting involved in the project. And hopefully if it's if it goes well, it takes off. And the NFTs themselves will have value that grows over time. So the idea that you can have a distributed autonomous organization and somehow we're going to change the human dynamic of how 
how ideas go from a person or a group of people into a huge movement, I don't know if that's really going to change. And we're so we're in this very new world. We're going to see how this evolves. But you know, can we rewire millennia of human history as a smart contract and be able to govern in a completely autonomous manner without any sort of leaders or leadership tiers? And I don't think that's going to be the case, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I was kind of thinking along the same question. And then I, I, I was thinking about Satoshi Nakamoto, who is yes. completely disappeared and it left behind an entire movement. I think that's probably the most anonymous and a community that actually self-sustains itself after so many shocks and resistance against the system that was bringing it down. I think Bitcoin itself has, has that a very intrinsically different feel from the rest of communities. But when you look at, say, Vitalik with Ethereum or maybe the founders of all the other protocols, whether Solana, Avalanche or Polygon, it's still very founder-driven, which I don't see any difference from when Linux Foundation yeah. was out. Everybody still look at Linus Torvalds as the leader. I still remember those days of open source software and who is the leader and you know why the movement was important. One key challenge I thought is interesting about communities is always to deal with monetization. One interesting part I took away from reading a book, how should community organizers think about this and what are the practical steps to take towards a monetization path? I mean, it is all good and few, but I think sometimes people underestimate the fact that even community organizers need to make a living and not everything is for free, I'm sure. Well, you mentioned open source. Great, incredible movement, which has you know, unleashed how much value in the world of technology and spreading technology. But eventually, companies came to monetize. Red Hat, GitLab, like all these companies, Confluent, Databricks, right? They, they all emerged from this idea of a few geeks getting together, building something which is amazing for a lot of other people to leverage. Other people seeing that there's a ton of value and also contributing. But eventually, somewhere down the line, people look at that and say, that's an opportunity to monetize. People ask me about monetization all the time of communities. And I say, look, money's not evil. Capitalism is not the, like this terrible thing. It's an option for unleashing value. And so I look at monetization as a necessity. A community's generally don't run for free forever. It's good in the beginning days to have a free model for participation and engagement, but eventually you got to think about what's the long-term strategy. And this is where, again, many communities have, they face a wall in their growth because eventually you need some sort of money to keep things going. And, you know, again, I, I think there's been this perception that community and money can't be aligned. I have the complete opposite perspective. Communities should find ways of monetizing to further on the generation of value. But you don't have to be completely profit motivated. And that's the difference. Money is a resource, just like people, just like time. You just pull on the resources and the levers that you need to help your community to grow and scale. Now, the interesting thing is going back to DAOs, 
Well, what I think is the most fascinating part of DAOs is that people can now have a direct contribution and direct reward as you start to put in your tokenomics in place and everyone has a certain share in that organization. As the organization grows and is creating value, you can have a direct direct value that accrues to yourself as a participant in the organization. And that's incredibly powerful. We haven't had you know, those types of mechanisms exist really ever. That is unleashed on technology as providing this incredible ecosystem to emerge. And so I, that's the part that I'm really fascinated about in maybe this next generation of community. So what are the key digital tools that community organizers need to have to build a community? I mean, no guesses. There's Slack, there is Discord, there is <laughs> Telegram. <laughs> Even WhatsApp is also a good solution. But I think maybe the underlying question is, which are the type of digital tools that people could think of? There's a lot of tools out there. I don't look at it as maybe tools. I do share some that I used in my communities. In the book, I think I have an appendix dedicated to different tools that I leveraged. I look at it as what are the, the core mechanisms that you need to create the community flywheel? And the community flywheel I define in as three key pillars. The first is what's the content? The second is what's building that anticipation? So that's events. And then third is, how are you creating collaboration? That's the peer-to-peer engagement. So you have content, which is really the, the value of the community. You have events that are driving anticipation and creating engagement. And then you have peer-to-peer engagement, which is enabling that level of collaboration and participation that gets the flywheel to continue to build and drive itself. So if you agree that that's a framework, now you need the pieces to get the framework to actually come together. And so what's going to be your community platform? Maybe that's a forum. Maybe it's a messaging group. What, what's your events platform? You know, so what do you do in terms of an event or an anticipation driver for your community? And then the last is how am I enabling peer-to-peer engagement? How do I enable one person to connect with another person, one person connect to a few, and so on and so forth. And so that could be could be one tool. There's some platforms that have emerged, particularly during this period of COVID, that can enable that broad-scale type of platform. But then maybe you think, maybe we just need something which does some of these things really well, and it's maybe using messaging, uh, like WhatsApp, Telegram, Slack, combined with some sort of knowledge repository. And then maybe we, you know, from an event standpoint, maybe we do everything in something like Zoom or Hopin or many of these other platforms that have emerged over the past year and a half to enable these virtual events. And now that we're getting kind of through COVID, maybe now we're shifting those to in-person. So maybe that's another way of, of creating anticipation. So that's the way I look at things from a digital perspective is if you have those different platforms that you are able to connect that drive that flywheel, then you have the right tools in place to allow your community to grow and scale. So let's apply those community building skills that you have as a global startup advocate for 
AWS. How do you engage startups or are there any uh, programs which startups can actually tap on to work with AWS, for example? There's a number of things that we do from the startup's perspective. And the very first program that I guide startup founders that I, that I work with to is Activate. Now, AWS Activate is not purely a community in and of itself, but we've built a lot of brand recognition. Startup founders know that they can use Activate to get credits to cover their costs, to get access to technical support and resources, to get education, to tap into partnerships for reduced rates on uh, certain software packages. So it provides a lot of value. But now we're thinking about what's the next evolution of that value creation. And I mentioned the flywheel before. So now Activate is starting to connect content with where you are in your startup journey, whether you are in the ideation stage, MVP stage, finding product market fit stage, wherever you are, there's content that's directed directly to your stage of maturity as a startup. Events, we're starting to uh, advertise or guide startup founders in Activate to particular events. It could be shows that we do in Clubhouse or Twitter spaces. It could be our summits. It could be other types of events that we're doing, whether they're digital in nature, like webinars or in-person events. And so we're able to guide startup founders in Activate to events, creating anticipation. And then lastly, peer-to-peer engagement. This is a pillar that we really haven't activated yet, but it's so critical. And so look out for some news downstream. I can't really announce officially anything yet, but we will be doing a lot more to allow to allow startup founders in Activate to engage, ask questions, and to have that peer-to-peer engagement. And so that's just one of many different types of programs that we have in place. But uh, from a developer standpoint, we have our heroes programs, community builders, user groups, and we have repost, which is a place where you can ask questions about things all across our services, questions that are can be very technical in nature, can be how-to in nature, and you can ask and get answers from other people in the community. So different things that we're putting in place to make community really happen and allow people to engage. So one interesting initiative when I was still in AWS and we collaborated at least once on was the use of Clubhouse. Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk a little bit more because I think you, you took quite a deep look into it and then we implemented some events and etc. Can you talk about the initiative and what have you learned using Clubhouse as a tool? There's also Twitter spaces as well. What have you learned from using those tools to engage communities? Those tools are a mechanism to create an audience. Is it a platform to create community though? So what I can say is through the use of Clubhouse, we have built a group through AWS Startups. So if you go to Clubhouse now, you can type AWS Startups, find our club on Clubhouse, and you'll see that there's 9,400 members of that club. Over the past year, we've had 170 shows, 
all like high quality content that features founders, investors, experts from the AWS community sharing their experiences and knowledge about building, growing and scaling on AWS technologies, but also getting the wonderful stories from founders who are building and innovating in so many different ways. So we have content, we have this content on a regular basis. So it's creating anticipation, those events, but we're missing something. We're missing that peer-to-peer engagement. But why did I start on Clubhouse last year? Well, one, there wasn't a really great way to get a whole bunch of people together. I think a lot of a lot of us were just maybe worn out with Zoom calls, with webinars. There's something that's freeing about the audio-only format because you can listen, you can do other things, and there's less of a bar because video isn't isn't something you have to think about. You don't have to worry about how you, how well you're groomed, whether you have any makeup on, whether you have the right lighting. So a lot of that overhead is taken off the table. And we have this, this phrase at AWS, taking away the undifferentiated heavy lifting. Right? I look at the way that you can deliver high quality content. If you can remove all the undifferentiated heavy lifting and just have really great conversations, that's what Clubhouse enables. So I thought about it as a way of building audience first to drive awareness from any part of the world. And so we had shows in the US, in EMEA, Africa, we had Asian shows, and it provided a really great way of reaching a whole lot of entrepreneurs, early stage founders into what AWS is all about. Now, but that's part one. Part two is, is something that's coming. And that is really thinking about how do we take these 9,400 people that are interested in what we're doing and what we're talking about and getting them to talk to each other. And so this is part of a longer term multi-part strategy to eventually build that dynamic entrepreneurial community that we can participate and help. But eventually it's something that the people within that community can take hold of and get value from. You talk about the community flywheel, and I guess that's probably inspired by the Amazon flywheel, which I'm very familiar with. How does a community flywheel happen? How do organizers actually sustain that flywheel given that communities might stagnate at some point? A large part of the book is dedicated towards scaling community. And I talk a lot about the specific motions that you need in order to go from having the core of that community. So you've probably had a bunch of events or you have a core group of people that are highly dedicated to the, to the effort and the work. But then you need to think about what's the long term. And in order to sustain that community, I talked a lot about this idea of volunteers before. You always got to be recruiting. You got to have other people that want to participate. Because those are people who are going to bring new ideas, new energy, and also continue to work when other folks that were early on in the community might get tired, may be distracted, may have other priorities. Life happens. And people that form communities, you'll hear a lot about burnout. Not something that 
a lot of people like to talk about, but it's a reality. Much like, again, startup founders. Burnout happens. We don't like to talk about it, but it's a reality. And so that's why you always have to think about volunteers to keep the, the lifeblood of the community going. You got to think about how you intelligently promote the community and all these other mechanisms that I describe in the book to allow that flywheel to take off. And if you don't do these things and you're not prescriptive and intentional about these concepts, then it's going to be really hard to allow to have that flywheel effect to take place. So it's got to be very intentional and it's built upon having a base to build from. So if you have the volunteers, you can continue to promote the community. You do things to operationalize and streamline the work you're doing in the community, that you're measuring those effects over time. Then you'll get to a point where the community can last a long, long time. So what does a great community look like for you then? Great community looks like a community where it's truly driven by the members. And I'm very proud to say, I, I think, you know, certain bias, obviously, but I think that the work that we've done with the AWS user group is a wonderful example of community in action. Now, are all of the user groups exemplary? Not necessarily, but by and large, it's self-driven and with very little input necessarily from AWS, from our employees. In fact, there's one person that's the head of AWS user groups, and she looks at 190 different user groups around the planet, all different languages, time zones. And actually, I may have messed up on the number. I think there's actually even more, but it's not just myself saying that that's impressive. There is an organization that is called CMX that's very well known in the community management space. And recently, they recognized AWS user group as one of the premier user groups of all company user groups that had been uh, nominated to win that award. And AWS user groups came out on top. So very happy to see that. I always would be very happy to see the success of AWS, given it myself as an ex-Amazonian. But all things needs to close. Many thanks for coming on the show. And thank you for schooling me on how to build a proper community. So in closing, two questions. Number one, any recommendations that have inspired you recently? Inspired me recently? I actually had a fascinating conversation on one of our Clubhouse shows. And we started talking about this, the concept of psychology. And so the book uh, by Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow, I read that book a long time ago. And it was actually fairly influential in my thinking about sales, about community. And so I've, I'm now starting to revisit the book because there's so much packed in there about different biases that we just overlook. And if you can unwire those biases, I think it, it helps you to be a lot more influential and to potentially have more impact. So. That's something that's been on my mind lately, is really thinking deeply about the, the human psyche 
and how to kind of unlock a lot of those biases. So how can my audience find you? I'm all over the interwebs. But the best way, I'm happy to connect on LinkedIn. You can just add a quick note when you send that connect request. Just let me know that you listen to this wonderful podcast and we'd be happy to talk more. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at Mark S. Birch. And if you like food pictures, you can follow me on Instagram <laughs> at StartupMarkB. But first and foremost, LinkedIn is usually the best way to find me. And definitely all of you can find us on any podcast platform. And also we have a Twitter uh, account, which is Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. And also check us out on our LinkedIn page. And it's actually growing relatively fast lately. So uh, Mark, once again, um, many thanks for coming on the show. And I'm um, glad to have this conversation. But next time when you're back in town, we're going to have another one. <laughs> Absolutely. We'd love it. Thank you so much, Bernard. Really appreciate the time. Run it.